look at verses 16 through 18. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, uh, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. I want to begin with a quote from late 17th, early 18th century British preacher Thomas Doolittle, who has written on uh, the importance of the Lord's Supper, or specifically the Lord's Supper. But here's what he says about the sacraments with an emphasis on the Lord's Supper. The sacraments are glasses for our understanding and monuments for our memories that by mean and visible sights we might perceive and call to mind sublime and invisible things. Now here's, let me repeat the quote and then there's something in it that I think it's easy for us to overlook when it comes to the sacraments. The sacraments are glasses for our understanding. So pause there for a moment and I wear glasses. So my glasses are on my face, allowing my eyes to see through them. Allow or what basically what he's saying is that the sacraments do to our understanding what glasses do for our eyes. For me, I've got a few things going on with my eyes. I've got astigmatism and a few other things that I'm, I probably need a couch to be able to explain, but I've got issues with my vision. And so I didn't realize that I needed glasses until I actually went and got my first, uh, or before I was diagnosed, I, I got a I think I was 18, 19, 20 years old or something like that before I got my first pair of glasses. And I didn't know I needed them. And so when I went to get my glasses, I actually, so I was, yeah, I was in my early 20s. So I I leave my office to go to my optometrist and I got the glasses and I was so excited about having glasses. I just put them on right away and whoa, my whole world changed. I, in the first place, I shouldn't have been driving, so I actually had to take them off because at that point, I was seeing in a way and trying to orient my new sight with my new glasses because I could see in ways that I hadn't seen before. But here was the issue. When I took them off, then all of a sudden I realized how bad my vision was. So I had to really get acclimated before I could safely drive home. So when Doolittle says that the sacraments are glasses for our understanding 
That stands out to me. And then the second thing that he says is that they are monuments for our memories. Monuments for our memories. In other words, they are visible things that are intended to trigger our memory, bring to mind. That's basically what's meant by memory. It's not just nostalgia. But there are, these are physical things before our eyes intended to trigger, bring to our minds a certain reality. But then he goes on to say, memories that, uh, and, and, and the, the things that are used are mean. And by mean, that's an old British way of speaking by saying something that's not of great significance in and of itself. So what triggers proper, healthy, godly memories, what enables our understanding to see in a way that it couldn't previously see, are mean or ordinary, ordinary things that are visible and physical, but with these things, so for instance, when we speak of the sacraments, in the sacrament of baptism, we're talking about water, not holy water, just tap water or river water, just water. And with the dynamics of water and the word of God, we're actually experiencing something, something is being brought to the forefront of our understanding, a dynamic that we would not ordinarily see that we died with Christ and are raised with him in baptism. And then he goes on, and, and so not just in baptism, but in the Lord's Supper. What does he take? Bread. And we can argue all day long and have all of our treatises and discourses on what kind of bread. Should it be crackers? And, and you know, we, we, we tease certain branches of the, of the evangelical faith. They use crackers and grape juice. And you know what? If there were a more robust theology that was attached to crackers and grape juice, to God be the glory. Because the truth of the matter is that through these beggarly elements, we are being connected to a greater truth. Not about the bread, not about the cup, but those things are attached to a greater truth about the Lamb of God slain since before the foundation of the world who actually enters into time and space. And in time and space, in a human body, he actually fully bore the wrath of God. But again, notice what Doolittle says here. It's through these mean or beggarly visible elements, it allows or, uh, that we perceive and we call to mind sublime and invisible things. Beautiful and invisible things. To take it a step further, and we repeat what we've stated in, on several occasions, which is this, that the sacraments are physical and visible manifestations 
of what the gospel itself announces. The sacraments, be it baptism or the Lord's Supper, are physical and visible manifestations of what the gospel itself announces. Now that being the case, what I want to do is approach this text this morning in 2 Corinthians 4 in light of the analysis of the sacraments uh, that Doolittle gives us and we want to apply this passage in light of his analysis specifically to the table. Now, there are three main thoughts that we'll look at, and the first one is this. I'll begin by stating that at the very core of Paul's words, both in our text and extending all the way back to verse 7, is a tension and a conflict that is the basis of the mindset and worldview of fallen humanity. So going all the way back to verse 7, all the way through our text, at the core of what Paul addresses in those verses is a tension and a conflict that is, at, that is really the basis of both the mindset and the worldview of fallen humanity. And here's that, that mindset. That which is seen is all there is. That which is seen is all there is, and that which is unseen does not exist. Therefore, one's purpose in life and the quality of one's living will always be measured by that which is seen. So here's what Paul is addressing all the way from verse 7 all the way through the end of the chapter. And he actually spills it over into chapter 5. The mindset of the fallen world, the worldview of fallen humanity, is that that which is seen is all there is. And that which is unseen does not exist. Therefore, One's purpose in life and the quality of one's life will always be measured by that which is seen. I say this is the core of Paul's thought from verses 7 through 18, but it's actually climax for us in verse 18. Because in verse 18, Paul makes a distinction between Christians, those who have been called out of the world, and those who are still trapped by the world. And here's the distinction that he makes. He says that we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So Paul is really making a distinction. It is our natural tendency, and we'll see that in a moment. It is our natural tendency as we come forth from the womb to only focus on the things that are seen. 
And we, we also tend to think that that which is not seen doesn't exist. And so those who, dis, who, who, have any, who disconnect or disclaim the claims of Christianity, they always accuse us of pie in the sky. They accuse us as, as being disconnected from the real world because the only thing that matters is what is seen. And that which is unseen doesn't matter. See how we use that to measure ourselves. So in terms of defining our purpose, in terms of defining whether or not, and here's, here's a category that comes out of that materialistic thinking, if we've arrived. How do we know when we've arrived? By looking at things that are seen. And that is the very antithesis of the gospel. And in a moment we'll see that it doesn't mean that we, these things disappear. But the point of the matter is that Christian faith is grounded in an antithetical worldview. If the world defines itself, if the world says that the only thing that exists is that which is seen. And if the world measures itself and measures the quality of life by that which is seen. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says about us as believers. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Hope or faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things that are not seen. Now the gospel, the gospel announces and the sacraments illustrate and they, they affirm to us those unseen things. And so here's the natural mindset of the world or here's the, the, the natural mindset of fallen humanity. The only thing that matters is what's seen. And everything that is unseen doesn't exist. And we're sitting here wearing masks because we know that there is something that is unseen that can have serious and far-reaching effects. And brothers and sisters, if that's true, in the bacterial world, that is telling us that there is a reality that grips and defines the totality of our existence beyond what we can see. Man is, or the human creature, is by design metaphysical. And by metaphysical, what I mean is that we are both physical, made up of material things, but we are animated by something that is other than material. And the human being, the man, the woman, the young man, the young lady, cannot fully define themselves simply by our physical existence. And that is the vanity of fallen humanity. That we look, as James says, we look into the mirror and we think we look good. But since we are more 
than what meets the eye. What we've seen in example after example in the scriptures that you can have a beautiful outward existence and be dead to the core on the inside. Isn't that what we see in the story that Jesus gives about Lazarus and the rich man? Look at the outward appearance of things. Outwardly, you you drive by and you say, who's on top of the world? As you see a beggar at a rich man's gate and the rich man comes by and just gives some scraps and you say, well, who in this picture would you want to be? And all of us want to be the rich man. And Jesus says, keep watching. And they die. The rich man, who from all outward appearances had it going on. In in hell, he lifted up his eyes. Lazarus, who was poor and miserable in this life, so much so that dogs were licking his sores. But when he died, he was escorted into the bosom of Abraham. Looks aren't everything. And so what Paul is addressing here is the conflict and the tension that defines the mindset and the worldview of the fallen mind. And that is, the only thing that matters is what is seen. And that which is unseen doesn't even exist. Well, That brings us to a second thing. And by the way, as we pointed out, that's what distinguishes Christians from non-Christians. We Now, it's not just that we believe in the unseen. And it should also be noted that what is unseen is based on what has been seen. You see, what we don't see is our position in Christ. But what what has been seen is a man called Jesus of Nazareth. And he was seen even after his death by over 500 people at one time. He was seen to have ascended into the heavens. And so we don't see him and we don't have to see him. Others have. And our faith is attached to what therefore is unseen. But here's the second thing. The fact that we Christians are defined by and connect it to that which is unseen, it does not mean that that which is seen doesn't affect, to, uh, affect us and that it doesn't matter. Here's, again, what the, the distinguishing mark that, that Paul makes here between Christians and non-Christians is he says we don't look at the things that are that are seen, but we look to the things that are unseen, but that does not mean, yes, we are defined by what is unseen. Yes, we are, we are strengthened, we are, we are formed, we are guided by that which is unseen, but that does not mean that the unseen, that that which is seen doesn't affect us, and it doesn't mean that we're not concerned by it. As a matter of fact, we can be so concerned or we can be so connected 
to the unseen that I think it is a legitimate criticism of Christians that, that when some people say that some Christians are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. I think that's a legitimate critique. You see, the fact that we are connected to and defined by that which is unseen does not mean that we are disaffected by that which is seen. It doesn't mean that we are disconnected from that which is seen. All of us live in homes. All of us need money. All of us walk streets that are are paved with, with concrete. All of us interact with neighbors. All of us go to hospitals. All of us deal with law enforcement. And so just because we are Christians doesn't mean that we are unaffected by the things that are seen. The difference is we're not defined by them. In fact, what we'll see is that as we are connected to that which is unseen, it should equip us to deal with the seen. Paul's concern here, in fact, his statement in verse 16 when he says that our outer man or our outer self is wasting away, is telling us that he very much is concerned about, he is affected by what is taking place. Just because we are connected to Christ and just because we are seated in heavenly places doesn't mean that our bodies are not affected by the things of the world. It doesn't mean that our outer person is not wasting away. In verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about afflictions and persecution. In verse 11, he talks about our mortal flesh. And that very phrase, mortal flesh, it tells you that something is temporal and it's fading away. But here's what he says in verse 14. In spite of the fact that there are trials, there are afflictions, there are persecution, in spite of the fact that our mortal bodies, our outer person, is wasting away, he says, we do not lose heart. Now, the very fact that he makes that statement that we do not lose heart implies that, that, that the, 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 on, if it implies the exact opposite. It implies that there is a possibility for Christians, Christians, those who are connected to that which we can see, it is possible that the things that are seen can distract us and discourage us in such a way that, that what is unseen doesn't disappear, but it can, it can become obscured. Brothers and sisters, I think that's one of the reasons the church should always be the heavenly sanctuary. That's one of the reasons we don't, we don't put up plaques and we don't, we don't, we, we, we don't, listen, I, I, I was listening to a podcast the other week and they were just saying that how, how they're tired of, of people saying that if you go to church on Sunday and if your church doesn't address this or that issue that's going on in the streets or in the culture, then you need to find another church. Brothers and sisters, no, that's not 
That's not the case. You have a whole bunch of people explaining what's going on out there. What you need is something that connects you to what is unseen and it won't make the disturbances go away. It's not going to make the pandemic go away. But it'll give you a, a, a more eternal perspective, hopefully not clouded by politics or personality. So that you'll know what's actually going on. And so here's what, what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, we are, we do experience persecution. We do experience affliction. We do experience our, our outer person perishing. Has anybody over the age of five recognized that you, what you used to be able to do? And you finished the sentence, right? <laughs> You know, and, and, and we, we so, so here's evidence, we are, we are perishing. And the reason we are perishing is because of mortal flesh. And if the only thing that we have to, to believe in is that which we can see, then our future is not too bright. It's because all we see is what happens when stuff fades away. And so Paul says, we see these things, but we are not defined by them. But here's the challenge, and by the way, I find it ironic that Paul would write these words, and I, I, it's not ironic in a ha-ha sort of way, but in a very honest way. As a matter of fact, look at the way he opens chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 3, Paul says this. Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure uh, the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know as, uh, that as you are in, uh, as you share in our sufferings, that you will also share in our comforts. But here's what he says. Watch this confession. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that, uh, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, 
but on God who raises the dead. Here's a brother who in his distress was so burdened by the things that are seen that he despaired of life. He's the same one who says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But his despair because of what is seen somehow caused him to to kind of retract that he despaired of life itself. And he goes on to say, but, but he, and then he says that he was comforted because he knows that the church prayed for him and that God used the prayers of the saints to raise his level of consciousness so he could indeed see that which is naturally unseen. Paul says we do not lose heart, but it's not because our vision of the unseen is not at times obscured. Isn't that what happened to Elijah? After he preached in in, in the presence of all of the prophets of Baal, but somehow he was so distracted because he, he had to flee for his life. And what was unseen was obscured. And it's an interesting thing because as Elijah preached, that fire came down from heaven and then he's driven away. And in his misery, in his moment of misery, he says that he's alone. I alone am left. Brothers and sisters, sometimes, even though we know that we are defined by and we are connected to that which is unseen, sometimes that which is seen, suffering and misery on the one hand, and sometimes luxury and goodness on the other hand. Sometimes we are so distracted by pleasure that we don't see that our greatest pleasure is to be brought into the presence of the Most High God, seated with his Son in heavenly places. So sometimes that which is seen, be it misery or the delusion of power and becoming, which is the issue with the rich young ruler, or which is the issue with with the man that Jesus tells about, the farmer who had a bumper crop, and then he says, oh, wow, Listen, I got to tear down barns to take in all of my goods. So sit, eat, drink, and be merry because we're all good. And Jesus called that man a fool because life is more than what you eat and life is more than what you put on. You see, being connected to and defined by that which is unseen doesn't mean the things that are seen don't affect us and that they're not important. But what it does do is it put these things in perspective. And so what Paul says about our outward man or our outward person perishing, he says, but here's what I understand. It's working for me a far greater work of glory recognizing that there is something beyond what is seen. 
And knowing that beyond, because here's the contrast that he gives. He says that which is seen is transient. It's, it's temporal. It's fading away. Including this body as it presently exists. But here he says on the other hand. That which is being renewed. And that which is unseen. Is eternal. And God who has saved us by his son has saved us for an eternal glory. So therefore, he uses this interesting phrase. He calls, and and you can, if you're connected to the content of the gospel, this is true no matter what it is you are going through. It doesn't make it any less of affliction. It is affliction, but he calls it a light affliction. And it's not worthy to be compared to the greater weight of glory. Well, let me just bring it to a a conclusion. Here's the third and final thing. And that is the gospel and the sacrament connects us to and reminds us of a truth that transcends our right now experience. The gospel and the table connects us to a truth that transcends, that goes beyond our right now experience. Whether you are sitting high or sitting low, if your faith is in the content of the gospel message, so for those who don't know, let me repeat what the gospel is so that you'll be clear on what it is not. The gospel is not that God answers all your prayers and then gives you this because you've done that. The gospel comes to you first with an announcement and a conviction of the bad news. And the bad news is if you're breathing, if you have flesh, then you have failed to meet the standard of God's holy law. And the unseen God has condemned you in Adam. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is still death. So therefore the sentence of death is in your flesh. And if you are disconnected from the eternal and the unseen reality of what God has done for you, then you're still condemned. And your eyes will be your witness of that. All you... Just when you go to church, when you leave the church, just go next door and see don't people die. But then here's the good news. God sent his son into the world. His eternal son came into the world and in human flesh obeyed God's law in thought, word, and deed. And in human flesh offered up himself in your place. Was laid in a grave. And three days later, he rose. Over 500 people saw him at one time. And he walked the streets that he walked before his death. And people saw him. He ascended into the heavens 40 days later. 
Now here's where the historians stop. Because they can only tell you what others who were alive at the time saw. And here's where theology picks up. He was received into the heavens at the right hand of the Father. The writer of Hebrews says that, that, that he says when he came into the world, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have given me to do your will, O God. So therefore, on the other side of the ascension, he goes back to the Father in the body that the Father had given him, having made the assignment that the Father had given him and presents him all done, righteousness accomplished, penalty paid, all done, Then he sat down, whereas other priests stand daily. He sat down because, therefore, mission accomplished. The reality is this, brothers and sisters. That is the unseen that we look to, that you and I, by virtue of our faith in the Son who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, you and I, wretched as we are, you and I have become children of the Most High God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs, then we are joint heirs with Christ Jesus. So therefore, we walk streets that fade. We interact with institutions and individuals that fail. But we ourselves are not defined by, nor are we driven by, that which is seen. And God every now and then calls us to the table because sometimes our vision of the unseen gets obscured either by our pleasure or our pain. And so in your hurt, he says, by his stripes you are healed. And when you come to the table as a fat cat, you come to the table as one who thinks that you've accomplished, he shows you that without this, you're just a rich man who goes to hell. Therefore, your riches is in his humiliation. And in his humiliation, is our exaltation. Brothers and sisters, we look not. We don't lose hope. We don't lose hope even though our outward person is perishing because we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. And so in our weakness as well as in our strength, I invite you to the table 
so that the greatest reality that you will experience in this redemptive moment is not your social status. It's not how many followers you have on social media. I invite you to the table so that you would know that you are more than your accomplishments. You are more than your income status. You are more than conquerors through him who loved you. Look to that which is unseen. And it's not unseen because it doesn't exist. It's unseen because it's beyond your immediate comprehension. So I return to the words of Doolittle. The sacraments are glasses for our understanding. And they are monuments for our memories. And I pray that our understanding is sharpened. And what, be, what would be brought to the forefront of our thinking is who we are in Christ. What he's done for us. And what that means to us. And that would become our greatest reality. That we are his. Saved. Sealed. And seated. Saved by his grace. Sealed by his spirit. And seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you.